All right. Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Glad you're here tonight, Wednesday night, here at Living Truth. We're in the book of Hebrews, so let's turn our Bibles to the book of Hebrews. I noticed that there's a balloon out there. It is Brother Bert's birthday. Brother Bert. So whenever you hear, uh, praise the Lord, hallelujah, that's Brother Bert. And uh, Craig had a birthday yesterday, is that right? And if anybody else has a birthday, I'm sorry, but it's all the time we have for birthdays. <laughs> anyway, if you do have a January birthday, happy birthday. All right, the book of Hebrews, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, let all the angels of God worship him. So we're moving verse by verse through the book uh, as we normally do. Let's stand to our feet if you're able to stand with us. And I want to welcome those who are watching live stream. Hebrews 1. We're going to backtrack to verse 3 and we'll read the text to the end of the chapter. Jesus is the subject. He is the radiance of his glory. Hebrews 1.3, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. There's our title for tonight. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all will become old like a garment. Like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be uh, changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels... Has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Father, we have a, a good uh, lengthy passage here to deal with tonight, and it is some deep uh, theology. And I pray that you'll give us understanding and a heart to respond, really a heart to look at the exaltation of Christ and to rejoice that we are in him if we're believers tonight and that this is who he is and this one came down on a rescue mission. We're so grateful for that. Grant us understanding. Help us to respond in a way that pleases and glorifies you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. You can have a seat. Let all the angels of God worship him. So uh, angels are uh, kind of an interesting, almost mysterious topic in the Bible. And uh, if you're interested, angels are mentioned 100 times in the Old Testament, over 100 times, and over 160 times in the New Testament. Here's what we know about angels in rapid fire. And my purpose tonight is not to give you a, a sermon on angels, but they are kind of the topic, at least a, 
uh, a connecting topic tonight. Number one, if you're taking notes, you can always go back and listen to this later. later. Angels were created by God early in the creation and shouted for joy when he created the earth. You can look at Job 38.7. Angels are continually praising God. We see that in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4. Day and night, they don't cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Angels carry out God's will and God's word. Psalm 103 says, bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Psalm 103, verse 20. Angels communicate God's message to man. For example, you can think of Daniel uh, receiving revelation. You can think of the apostle John who received the book of Revelation through an angel. You can think of Gabriel announcing the births of both John the Baptist and Jesus early in Matthew and Luke. In Jewish writings uh, outside the Bible, we have names of angels like Raphael, Uriel, and Phanuel, uh, the only two that we really have names of in the Bible other than Lucifer, who would be a fallen angel, would be Gabriel and Michael. Angels, number five, rejoice at the salvation of the lost. Luke 15 tells us that there's joy in the presence of the holy angels when one sinner comes to repentance. Amen? Angels minister to those who will inherit salvation. We'll look at that tonight, and we'll look at some angel stories that are pretty intriguing. Uh, so they minister to those who will inherit salvation. There are some who believe that each of us have a guardian angel. Uh, that's a debatable point. That's Matthew 18, 10. And Jesus talked about their angels. Always behold the face of my father. Uh, I'm not sure we all have a guardian angel. Some of you need two or three or four or five. But that's another story for another time. Psalm 91.11 says, He will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Angels actually broke uh, the apostles out of prison on a couple of occasions. Peter in Acts 12.7. And uh, I think it was Peter and John in Acts 5.19 and 20. Angels are said to be involved in a believer's death. When Jesus pulls back the veil of two people who died in Luke 16, it says, now it came about that the poor man died and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, Luke 16, 22. So it would appear that angels have some involvement after we die, perhaps to usher us into the presence of God. Angels will be highly involved at Christ's second coming. They will call forth the elect, will hear the voice of the archangel, there'll be a loud trumpet. They are the reapers in separating the wheat from the chaff, according to Matthew chapter 13, etc. And Jesus is coming with all the angels, Matthew 24, verse 31. And then you can look at um, Matthew 13, verse 41. Many Jews believe that the old covenant was brought forth to them by God or from God through the mediation of angels. Deuteronomy 33.2 says the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Mount Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran and he came from them. He came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. Deuteronomy 33.2. Psalm 89.7 says a, a, a God greatly feared is the, in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him. 
That's our God, Psalm 89, verse 7. And so Galatians 3.19, let me just give you a final one, says, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. So to the Jewish mind, angels were extremely exalted, immeasurably important, uh, mainly because it was believed that the law what came through the mediation of angels. And when I say the law, I'm talking about the Ten Commandments and then the laws that spring forth from the Ten Commandments. And so angels were seen as very important. And we have called this particular study in the book of Hebrews our superior and sympathetic high priest. And so Jesus is superior to the law and he is superior to the angels. And remember that this first century audience was having a difficult time. There was persecution. They were tempted to go back to the temple, tempted to go back to the law. And the writer is uh, linking them back to the Old Testament, if you will, to show them the superior nature of Christ so that they don't give up, so that they don't turn back, so that they don't go back to the world or back to the law or back to trying to please God from the standpoint of performance. And this is a very real issue for all of us tonight. No matter what you are tempted to go back to, one of the things that will keep you on track is to continue to see the exalted Christ who saved you for who he is. Amen? So I think on a practical level, that's what the writer is doing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that he is making sure that they see Christ for who he is so that they know who they are. And identity is a huge issue in our world. It's a huge issue for all of us. We want to be secure in our identity. It's a big problem all over the world. I don't have time to go there tonight, but you guys know that it is. And so when we see the exalted Christ for who he is, it helps us stay on track and be who we're called to be. So what do we know about Jesus? Well, we've learned some things about who he is in the first three verses that God has spoken to us in these last days through his son and that he is the exact representation of God the Father's nature and that through Christ he made the world and he holds it all together. And I hope you were with us last Wednesday or you got a chance to listen because we're on holy ground. And it was amazing just to see who Jesus is. And the writer will continue with that theme and I'm gonna try to give you several points that will help you along the way in some exalted territory in terms of theology, some passages that need explanation for us to have understanding, at least seven Old Testament quotes from the writer of Hebrews, and each of the quotes that he gives are from the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. So you say, what is that, Pastor Michael? Well, the Septuagint version of the Old Testament was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament they believe it was completed around 250 BC, somewhere in there. So basically, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. The writer of Hebrews, every time he quotes a verse in this section, is quoting the Septuagint version. And that's important to understand because there's some variation in some of the quotes. If you go back and you read from your Bible some of the quotes I'm going to give you tonight, you may be a little bit confused because the Septuagint version sometimes has a little different content in those verses. That's the Greek translation, and that's what's going to be quoted tonight. 
And you can see that this uh, writer has incredible depth of knowledge into the Old Testament. He's going to quote at least seven Old Testament verses, five of which are Psalms. And I hope that many of you have become very familiar with the book of Psalms because a Psalm a day will help your heart stay steady. Amen. It's like, you know, it's a prescription for the soul to read a Psalm a day. And so it begins this way. It's verse four and it says, having become or being made is the King James version as much better than the angels. Now remember the, the big theme, the superiority of Jesus here over the angels. He is better than them. He is superior ESV to the angels. He has inherited a more excellent name than they. If you're taking notes, Jesus has a superior name. Now when, see, when people see something like the King James has it as being made much better, immediately our minds think of, well, maybe that means that Jesus was created. Is, is Jesus, as the Jehovah's Witnesses would say, the first and greatest creation of God? Well, that is not what the Bible teaches, but that is what some groups believe. And sometimes when you read uh, words like firstborn, as we're going to see tonight, and being made as the King James Version has it, it can be confusing. And for us in our Western culture, when we look at words or phrases, what do we do? Well, we immediately put them into a channel of what we know by way of a, a modern definition. And you have to be careful when you're looking at your Bible that you will automatically categorize things in you know, the century in which you live and what you've learned. That's why it's important to know, you know what these definitions are, have a little bit of a working knowledge with original languages, and at least be able to go check what words mean because uh, this is going to be very important here. And so Jesus, having become met much better than the angels, someone might say, well, how could he become much better than the angels if he's the creator, he was always better than the angels, wasn't he? Flip over to Hebrews 2, just for a second, look at verse 9. The topic is Christ, and it says, We do see him who was made for a little while, what's your Bible say? Lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, Jesus became greater than the angels, more excellent, having a more excellent name. In fact, he has the name which is above all names. And in Philippians 2, that idea is tied to what Christ did. He humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? To the glory of God the Father. When Jesus was incarnated, when he became a man, a baby born in Bethlehem, he became for a time a little lower than the angels because he became a man. And he dealt with all of the normal stuff that we deal with it. We deal with. Now, he was 100% God, 100% man, we know, but he humbled himself. When he died on the cross, if you looked at Jesus in those moments, in his agony, Isaiah 
would tell us that he was barely recognizable as human. He was not in human eyes exalted. We would say he was brought to the lowest point, suffering the death of basically a criminal to be executed. But on the cross, he triumphed over principalities and powers and through the resurrection, this is Romans 1-4 if you're taking notes, he's declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And the resurrection was God's seal of approval on the crucifixion. It is finished. Paid in full. Jesus goes into the tomb and then he rises from the dead. And that is heaven's seal that this is truly God the Son or the Son of God. That's what's going on in this verse. Jesus humbled himself, but upon his victory through the cross and the resurrection, he has now inherited a more excellent name than the angels. Angels are called sons of God, Job 1.6, but Jesus is the unique son of God by nature. That's Hebrews 1.3, and it connects to verse 5. Take a look. For to which of the angels did he, that is the father, ever say, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. To which angel did God ever say, you are my son? Answer, none. Now, this is important for you to understand, and I don't want to pick on Jehovah's Witnesses tonight, but they started it, so we need to respond to it. In Jehovah's Witness teaching, when you kind of peel back the layers, they believe that Jesus is the first and greatest creation of God, and he is Michael, the archangel. Now, why did they come up with that teaching? Well, Charles Taze Russell, who was the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, had a problem with the Trinity. And he would debate people. He owned a clothing store. He would debate people at the counter. And he began to attack the Trinity in his writings. And he denied the Trinity. So he taught that Jesus was created by God and not the creator. And so there needed to be some other explanation for who Jesus is. And Russell, who was repeating a heresy from the fourth century of the church called the Arian heresy, uh, repeated that late, much later on and said that Jesus was created by the Father. He was the first and greatest creation of God. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the creator of everything. And he created principalities and powers, which would include angels. He's the creator of angels. And God never, ever said to an angel, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now some of you say, but wait a minute. That language of begotten is confusing and maybe it does help the other camp. Again, I will be a father to him, end of verse five, and he shall be a son to me. Two verses, if you're taking notes. One is a quote from Psalm 2-7 and one is a quote from 2 Samuel 7-14. The first quote from Psalm 2-7 the second quote from 2 Samuel 7, 14. What are we to make of the word begotten? Today I have begotten you. Well, the whole section is tying to Jesus' inheritance as a son. And the word begotten speaks of the father bringing him forth. Just listen to this. You, you can write this down because this is the actual quote, quoting section. Psalm 2, 6 through 8. 
But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, thou art my son, Psalm 2, 7. Today I've begotten thee. And then the father says to the son, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Now I want to show you one verse that will help clarify this. It's in the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. We'll come back to Hebrews in a moment. Taking scripture with scripture. Let's look at a sermon that Paul gave early in his ministry. Acts chapter 13 at a place called Pisidian Antioch. And he is preaching about the gospel in Acts 13, 30. We're going to read verses 30 through 34. And here's what Paul says. He's talking about Christ and all that was written about him. And he says, but God, Acts 13, 30, raised him from the dead. We know that the father raised the son. Yet we have scripture that says that the son raised the son. <laughs> and we have scripture that the Holy Spirit raised the son. Who raised Jesus from the dead? The father, the son, or the Holy Spirit? Yes. All three. The answer is yes. Ding, 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 ding. You win the prize. But God raised him from the dead. This is Paul preaching. Uh, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Romans 10 verse 9. So the resurrection is a vital part of our faith. And here's what Paul says. And for many days, he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people, Acts 13, 32. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God fulfilled this promise to our children, that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm. Here it is. Thou art my son, Today I have begotten thee. Look at the context. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Today I have begotten you does not speak of the womb, but of the tomb. Today I have begotten you is not a uh, God saying I made him or created him, it's saying, I resurrected him. That's the context here. Everybody got it? Shake your head so at least I have a little bit of confidence, all right? So we're dealing with not a creation of Christ, but a resurrection, God the Father raising him from the dead. That is what the book of Hebrews is talking about back uh, there will go. And Paul, of course, explains it. F.F. Bruce puts some icing on the cake when he says the implication here seems to be that Psalm 2-7 refers to the time when the Messiah, after suffering and death, is brought back into the realm of the living. Listen to it. Today, I have brought you forth. From where? From the tomb into the reality of resurrection. That's who Christ is. That's why, again, he is unique from the angels. You are my beloved son, in you, I am well pleased. We just studied the baptism of Christ, right? That's the Father's declaration of the Son. And when he again, Hebrews 1, 6, 
probably speaking either to a second supporting uh, quote to his superiority over angels or maybe even to the incarnation that he became human when he again brings the firstborn into the world he says let all the angels of God worship him now Jesus has a superior name and he is also superior as in the statement he is the firstborn if you want the word it's pro tatikas Everybody want to learn a Greek word? Pro-tatikas. Say it with me. Pro-tatikas. Now that's the word for firstborn. And it's kind of a cool word to show off among friends or whatever you want to do. Anyway, what does it mean? Well, here's where you have to take yourself out of the realm of Western culture just for a moment and put yourself in some Hebrew sandals. In Hebrew culture, the firstborn wasn't always the first one born. It was the one who had superior rank or superior position. David was the youngest of Jesse's sons. Yes, yet he was God's firstborn in terms of preeminence. Esau was born first, then Jacob. Who inherited the promises? Jacob. You have Ishmael born first, but who's the son of promise? Isaac. So in Hebrew thought, it doesn't have to do necessarily with birth order, but with rank. Who is it that is superior in this context? And just to bring home the idea that Jesus is not the first created being, because by the way, if you think about the word, look at the, the verse again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, see the kind of the end of verse six. The word for world there is not uh, cosmos. It's a, world, it's a word that means the inhabited earth. So when God brought his son into the world, was he the first one born on earth? No. Who was, who was first on earth? Adam and Eve and then their children. So Jesus wasn't the first person born on earth. So what is he? Well, he has preeminent rank. Though he came into the world, well into world history, he is the superior one nonetheless. He has the highest rank, the name above all names. In fact, his name is so high that God the Father says, let all the angels of God, not some, end of verse six, let all the angels of God worship him. Pray tell, friends, brothers, sisters, how could God the Father tell other angels to worship another angel? And where in your Bible have you ever read that God would sanction the worship of somebody other than himself? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make an idol to worship it. In the book of Revelation, the Son is worshipped right before the Father and it is right and good and true. How could that be if Jesus is some lesser being? Even if somebody wants to say, well, he's a secondary junior God. A junior God? I thought God was God was God. If you're God, you can't be a junior God, can you? Can you be sort of God? No, you're either God or you're not. 
And the Father is telling all the angels to worship the Son. And God says, I won't share my glory with another. Therefore, Jesus must be God. And second person of the Holy Trinity. If you're taking notes, I, I mentioned to you the quotes from the Septuagint. This comes from Deuteronomy 32:43 in the Septuagint version. And it's perhaps also a quote from Psalm 97, verse 7. And let me just read to you the, this is the Septuagint version of Deuteronomy 32, 43. Rejoice, O nations, with his people. Let all the angels worship him, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries. He will atone for his land and his people. So the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which many of you have heard about, show in addition to the first line of the verse of Deuteronomy 32, 43, the Jews considered the final lines to be about the Messiah. And no doubt, God the Father is saying, Christ is worthy of worship, which therefore makes him God. Now, the question becomes, did Jesus ever receive worship in the New Testament? He did. In fact, uh, on the night that Jesus was born, the angels appeared and they began to sing glory to God in the highest. Let me just uh, remind you of a few places. The wise men come and worship Jesus. They fall down before him, offering gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You guys remember that? Uh, in Matthew 14, 33, I want to show you this because I, I think it's important for you guys to have it as uh, something in your mind when you're having conversations with people. Go to Matthew 14. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So this is the miracle when Jesus uh, walks on water. And Peter also has a little walk on the water as well. Skip down to Matthew 14, 33. Jesus stopped the wind and those who were in the boat, what's your Bible say? They worshiped him and they said, you are certainly God's son. In Mark 3.11, when the uh, demons ran into Jesus, they would fall down at his feet and they would say, uh, you certainly are the son of God. Uh, you can think of in Matthew 28, they, he is worshiped. In Matthew 28.17, he's worshiped. The formerly blind man worships him. And even in John 20, 28, if you go back to Hebrews 1, and I'm sorry for going so fast, uh, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus rightly says, you've seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Jesus did receive worship and he is God. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying emphatically so that these believers would know uh, that Jesus will pull them through. Now, we're going to go back to Hebrews 1, verse 7. We'll continue to see a little contrast between the angels and the Christ. Of the angels, he, and I think in view here is the Father, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, the Father says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, 
has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Now, some of this language is a bit difficult, but the father is speaking of the son, Hebrews 1.8, quoting from Psalm 45, 6 and 7, if you're taking notes. Psalm 45, 6 and 7. And God the Father calls God the Son, God. Now, if some of you are newer to Trinitarian theology, I understand this is a little bit of tough sledding. Because sometimes you're like, wait a minute. The Father is calling the Son God. I remember when I grew up and I knew some things about Jesus and stuff. When I heard people say that Jesus was God, it, it kind of confused me at the beginning. And, I, and it, it's hard sometimes to get your bearings and then to understand how could God be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, one in three. And again, as I said last week, some of these things are beyond my finite mind, but God is infinite. So my finite mind can't grasp everything that's infinite. Amen? I mean, that's just the way it is. So the text should guide us. And the text says, of the son, the father says, in contrast to the angels. So the angels are compared to winds and fire. That's from Psalm 104, verse four. Uh, but the son, in contrast to the angels, is uh, addressed this way. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever and the righteous scepter, which goes back to Psalm 2, he will rule with that rod of iron, is the scepter of his kingdom. You've loved righteousness, you've hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Uh, on Sunday, we looked at Acts 10, 38, and we discovered that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit, and he went around doing good. Well, here's some of that language. The oil, uh, the anointing of a king, the anointing of our great high priest, if you will. And clearly, the father calls the son God. Psalm 45 is a wedding song originally describing the king of Israel, but later understood by the rabbis to be about the Messiah. And so there's a contrast between the royal person addressed and his servant companions. And some have seen in this that when Jesus went around in his earthly ministry, he had a ton of joy. You know, sometimes we see depictions of Jesus and we see him as a rather somber, serious guy. But he had his moments, certainly. And he was living in the shadow of the cross, but he was a joyful person. He had the oil of gladness overflowing from him. One of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is joy. And Jesus was operating in all the fruits of the Spirit. So if we're going to walk in the same way that Jesus walked, I'm not going to say we're going to be giddy all the time, but we're going to have joy. What is joy? It's a calm delight. It's a calmness and an assurance about life, even when things are not easy in our lives. That's what joy is. Joy is staying calm because you have your eye on the big picture. And so that's what Jesus had. And I think if we would have met Jesus in his earthly ministry, and of course, one day we will be with him forever. Amen? And we'll get to experience it. Uh, we would have experienced, I think, uh, a man of great joy because the Holy Spirit, of course, was uh, moving powerfully in his life. And you get, I think you get the picture. So in verse 10, 
The subject is still the son and the father addressing the son. Notice what happens next. The father continuing to talk about the son says, and thou Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the works of thy hands. Now, the father's been talking about the, the son and him being on the throne and his joy. And now the father says that Jesus laid the foundation of the earth and that the heavens are the works of his hands. A further argument that Jesus is God and made everything. This is amazing. I don't think we can say this enough. The baby born in Bethlehem is also the creator of the universe and Hebrews 1.3, the sustainer of the universe. That to me is an amazing testimony. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, again, all three members of the Trinity were involved in the creation, so don't get confused there. But Jesus Christ is uh, attributed here with setting the foundations of the earth and making everything. Just think about it for a second. Remember the, all the questions that God asked of Job in the book of Job? Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? Where were you? Where were you? Where were you? Who taught God how to make water? Who taught God how to make an eye? Who taught God how to make a circulatory system? How to make a blue whale? An ostrich? Have you seen some of the birds? The long beaks? <laughs> There's some crazy stuff walking around and some even crazier stuff swimming through the sea. Some of which we haven't even discovered yet. Not to mention that Astronomers say that the universe is expanding and there's all these stars out there that, and they're so huge that it's unbelievable what's out there. Maybe when we get there, we'll get tours, you know, <laughs> around the stars. I don't know what's going to happen, but anyway. Now, what has been made is going to wear out, but not Christ. In fact, Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the immutability of God, if you want a big word, that he's unchanging. God cannot change. That's why Israel was not consumed in the Old Testament. That's why we are here right now. God is faithful. He's the same. He can't change in his, his, his essential nature. Now, some of you say, well, yeah, but he became a man. He took on the additional nature of humanity. But God in his essential nature stays who he is. He's immutable, unchanging. That's what the book of Hebrews says later on. And what has been made, as awesome as it is, now fallen under the curse, will perish, verse 11. But you remain, thou remainest. They will become old as a garment. This is from Psalm 102, 25 through 27, if you're taking notes. As a mantle, thou will roll them up. As a garment, they will also be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. God doesn't get old. He doesn't need sleep. And everything that he made, as awesome as it is, and we just described a little bit of it, one day he's going to roll it up like a scroll and he will make new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. But he will stay the same. 
Uh, scientists say that what's being mentioned here in the book of Hebrews is the second law of thermodynamics. What's that? That the universe is running downhill, if you will. That there's kind of a, an ebb uh, uh, that we're, at one point, we can see that there's decay in the universe. That it's running downhill. Uh, for example, if you don't keep up on your bedroom, uh, you will experience the second law of thermodynamics. Socks will be all over the place. There'll be undone laundry. And it's a good excuse if your spouse ever asks you, what is going on? Why can't you pick that up off the floor? You could just appeal to the second law of thermodynamics. It's just at work. It's a law. What can I do? A comedian was talking about how husbands and wives communicate. And he was saying, you know, my wife never directly tells me things. She puts it in the form of a question. And so sometimes I'll leave my underwear, you know, in the middle of the room and she'll say to me, she won't say, can you please pick those up? She'll say, are those your underwear? <laughs> and he responds, I sure hope they are because if they're not, I have some questions of my own. <laughs> anyway. You say, are you really appealing to the second law of thermodynamics as an excuse, Pastor Michael? Perhaps. <laughs> Everything's gonna wear out. Uh, in fact, you're in the middle of that experience right now as a human. And some of you are younger in the room, so the law, that law has not quite hit you the way it's hit some of the others in the room. We won't mention any birthdays or anything like that. But as much as hard as you try, I'm in my 50s. Some of you are like, yeah, you ain't nothing, whippersnapper. I get it, I feel you. Don't get angry. <laughs> but here's the thing. We're experiencing it. We're sadly under the curse and the wages of our sin is death. But here's the good news. The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And this writer is saying to this little beleaguered church, don't give up because he tasted death for everyone. He's resurrected he made the world. And yes, he will roll up this current condition of things, but he's going to make everything new, including you. Amen. Amen. And oh, I'm looking forward to a couple of new knees and a lower back that continues to talk to me. Those, those are just a few areas, but anyway. So he's the same. You never change. Uh, and I'm so grateful because the world is full of change and, and the change that we experience is not always good. Some change is good, right? But there's been some twists and turns in this life for all of you that have not been great. Uh, you know, that's the one thing that we can bank on that things won't stay the same in this fallen world, right? Uh, kids get older, we get older, um, the world goes through what it goes through. But here's the good news. He remains. And the good news is he remains faithful. If you're banking on anything else, it won't last. If you're putting your hope in any temporary fixes, that's all it will be. Temporary. Final two verses. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Quoting now Psalm 110, verse 1, if you're taking notes. 
To which of the angels has he ever said a rhetorical question because the answer is none. Sit at my right hand. That's the place of exaltation and power authority until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, he said that to no angels, but he said it to his son. Are they not all ministering spirits? Now back to the angels, in contrast to the son, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Answer, yes. That's what angels are. Ministering spirits under the sympathetic direction of our great high priest, who is superior to everything, even the angels. But the angels are in his employ. What does that mean? It means that angels are involved in the church and the life of believers. And if I were to ask you to start lining up and sharing potential angel encounters, we might hear some weird stories, no doubt. But some of you have some, some kind of strange stories and uh, you might wonder, did I ever run into an angel? I'll share one personal one. I, I was a young Christian. I was in my 20s. The senior pastor of the church asked me to share my testimony one Sunday. I went to the pulpit and said to the people, well, I came up here, tried to clean up my life this week so I could share something good with you guys. And I tell you, there was a levity in the audience. They found that really refreshing. Like, all right, I, I tried to live the right way for the last three or four days before I talked to you guys, right? That's where I was at. My, uh, my, Clothing existed of a lineup of bike coaches shorts, which were way too short, and uh, tight t-shirts, which should have been illegal. But anyway, and I, and I stood up there and I shared my testimony. Uh, and you know, I look back then and I only knew what I knew, right? But I knew God's grace was amazing. And I was standing in the foyer of the church and a man who had a red beard uh, said, can I shake your hand? And, and he shook my hand and he said, Thank you for what you shared today. Uh, you can help a lot of people. And he gave me one of those looks like, you know, looked into my soul kind of looks. And he wouldn't release my hand and it was a little bit weird. <laughs> and you can help a lot of people. And he held my hand and then kind of in the melee of many people walking by, you know, he disappeared from view and I never saw that guy again. I, I'd been around the church a lot, even up to that point. He, he wasn't familiar to me. And I never saw him again. Now, I have no idea if he was an angel. Uh, some of you are wondering if angels could have red beards. I have no idea. But here's what I'll say. That was kind of life-changing to me. Because it was right at a moment where I was teetering, you know, what, what did I want to do with my life? I was a new Christian. I was battling, falling to sin way too regularly, even though I knew better. And that, that was a moment. Let me share just a couple stories with you and we'll close it down. One dark night, about 100 years ago, a Scottish missionary couple found themselves surrounded by cannibals intent on taking their lives. That terror-filled night, they fell to their knees and prayed to God that he would protect them. Intermittent with their prayers, the missionaries heard the cries of savages and expected them to come through the door at any moment. But as the sun began to rise, to their astonishment, they found that the natives were retreating into the forest. The couple's hearts soared to God. It was a day of rejoicing. The missionaries bravely continued their work. A year later, the chieftain of that tribe was converted to Christ. 
As the missionary spoke with him, he remembered the horror of that night and he asked the chieftain why he and his men had not killed them. The chief replied, well, who were all those men who were with you? The missionary answered why there were no men with us. There was just my wife and myself. The chieftain began to argue with him and said, there were hundreds of tall men in shining garments with drawn swords circling about your house so that we could not attack you. Norwegian missionary Marie Monson served in North China and experienced the intervention of angels on several occasions. In her autobiography, A Present Help, published in 1960, she tells how looting soldiers had surrounded the mission compound but never entered, leaving the missionaries unharmed and happily perplexed. A few days later, they learned why the raiders uh, didn't come in and why the compound wasn't attacked. They explained that there was all about the compound tall soldiers with shining faces on a high roof of the compound. Miss Morrison said, this unbeliever saw them. It was a testimony to them, but they were invisible to us. It came powerfully to me and showed, how me, how, showed me how little we reckon with the Lord, the God of hosts, who sends forth his angels mighty in strength to do service for the sake of them who will inherit salvation, Hebrews 1.14. Jim Marstaller recounts the following story told by his uncle Clyde, Clyde Taylor, founder of the National Association of Evangelicals. Dr. Clyde Taylor, who married my grandfather's sister, and my uncle Charlie Marstaller were missionaries in the early 1920s to a headhunting tribe in South America. They were beside a river in the forest living in a thatched hut. One day late in the afternoon, they noticed a dugout being paddled down river with only one man on it. Their immediate thought was that the warriors were coming to kill them that night. The dugout could hold over 40 men and they realized that the men were probably going to try to kill them that night. Uncle Clyde and Charlie had a 22 rifle in their hut. They took it, they took some ammo out into the tall grass off to the side of their dwelling. There they stayed all night in their own private prayer meeting expecting that if attacked, they would fire the gun into the air and hopefully frighten the headhunters. Nothing happened that night, and they had no trouble with the tribe for the rest of the term in South America. They both returned home after their term was over, and it wasn't until nine years later that Clyde was able to visit the field once again. One day, he encountered one of the men of the tribe who had since become a Christian. He asked the native about what happened that night. The former headhunter and whenever you meet one of these, you'd like for them to say, I'm a former headhunter, <laughs> said these words. Quote, I remember that night. There were 44 of us and we were coming to set fire to your hut. When we got there and surrounded the hut, we realized that we could not attack because there were hundreds of men dressed in white with swords and shields standing all around your hut and even on the roof. Listen to these words. That's why I'm a Christian now because of what I saw that night. And these stories are pretty amazing. Uncle Clyde realized then that God had protected them with his angels and used this account to be an encouragement to many others throughout the rest of his life. I could share a few more, but I think you guys get the point. Some of us have entertained angels unaware. We'll find later in the book of Hebrews. And God... Our, our superior high priest is also sympathetic. 
And one way that he extends mercy and grace to us is through his ministers who are angels. Now, I'm not going to tell you that I know a whole lot about this topic. I only know that the Bible says God uses angels sometimes in our lives to minister to us. just want you to think about that for a second. You're not alone. You're not alone. Because your great high priest has a whole legion of angels, more than we probably know, probably billions of them. And they're in his employ to make sure we get where we need to be. Now, I can't, under, I can't explain every angle of that to you and why some things happen and some don't, but I just know this, that our God has the means and the power to protect us and guide us to that destination. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for this time in the Word of God. These are some deep topics. Thank you for the people's attention and uh, the beauty of all these Old Testament quotes, many Psalms, a few from other places, and the great uh, link we have from Old to New Testament, ultimately pointing us to the gospel, who is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you that you are so gracious to us, that you, who made the heavens and the earth and sustained them by the word of your power, came on that rescue mission for us, O oh Lord. What can we say? We're just so grateful, humbled by your love for us. If you're watching via live stream right now or you're here in this place and you've not met this Jesus, maybe you didn't know who Jesus was. Maybe there was some confusion about his nature, his name, his superiority, his power. Oh, he's the name above all names. And he's asking you to trust him tonight, to believe on him, to take him at his word. So if you've never asked him into your life, it's something this simple yet profound, Jesus prayed if it's you. Thank you for who you are. You made the world, you made me. I sinned against you and you came to rescue me and pay my debt. Thank you, Lord. I believe not only in who you are, but in your death and resurrection for my sin and to make me righteous. I believe you're in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father, dispatching angels, ministering grace. You're the exalted Christ and I ask that you would be my Lord, my Savior, my God, my King. Teach me who you are. Teach me to trust you in my life and to get me where I need to go, Lord, not only in this life, but ultimately to be with you. Thank you, Father, for those who are crying out, prodigals who may be making recommitments and saints who are just rejoicing in your goodness. We love you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, all God's people said.